Turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, and we're going to begin in verse 21. We're continuing through the Christmas season here, the Advent season, to look at the arrival of the King. As Luke tells the story for us of the arrival, the advent of Jesus, the Messiah, the King, what clues do we have in his version of the story about Jesus being the king and what that means for what he would do and what he would accomplish. It's really Matthew who is known for writing the story in such a way as to highlight that Jesus is the king. But it's certainly present in Luke's version of the story as well. And so some of the things that we're identifying are more direct. They're very obviously associated with Jesus being king. And some are more indirect as we kind of connect the dots between what was said in the Old Testament about the Messiah, the King, and what Jesus actually came to accomplish and to do. So we're finishing that this morning with Luke chapter 2. We'll look at verses 21 through 40. And instead of reading the whole thing all at once this morning, I'm just going to read it in sections and talk as we go. There's going to be four things that we will see this morning about Jesus as the King. So the first one that we're going to note is that Jesus is the spotless lamb who fulfills the law. Let's go ahead and read, starting in verse 21, Luke chapter 2. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So why does this happen? Why does Jesus get brought to the temple to be dedicated? Well, this is happening in obedience to God's law. And the the reason that this is in the law is that it is a marker, a sign of the Passover event in Israel's history. It's talking about this, this firstborn child being dedicated to redemption. And so what I want to do this morning, I'm not going to make you turn a lot of places during the message this morning, but I do want you to turn back with me to Exodus chapter 12. So mark your place in Luke 2. And turn back to Exodus chapter 12 with me. Exodus 12. The story that we find here picks up with Israel as slaves in Egypt. And God is about to rescue them, to redeem them. And so we have... Nine plagues that have happened and a final one has been threatened and that final plague is the death of the firstborn. And so I'm not going to read Exodus 12, but I want you to kind of follow along as we skip through and just kind of see what's happening in this chapter. So Exodus 12, verse 1, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. So what God is saying there is he's going to reorient time itself for Israel based on this event. This is going to mark a new beginning. And so connecting the dots here a little bit, this dedication that is pointing back to the Passover happens on the eighth day. And eight is the number of new beginnings. 
Uh, it's why in the early church, when they built baptistries, buildings that were set apart just for baptisms, they were eight-sided buildings shaped like an octagon. It's why, um, you know, you think about the, the music scale. And if you were to hit middle C and then following the white keys up, you go up to the eighth note is what? It's C again. It's the same thing, but it's a new beginning. Uh, days of the week. We have seven days in our week, and the eighth day is a new beginning. It's the new day of the week. So the, the number eight is associated with new beginnings. And so here in the Passover story, God is telling Israel, this is going to be a new beginning. We're going to mark time starting from this event. And of course, then he gives the instruction about taking a lamb and uh, verse 5, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Keep it till the 14th day of the month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. And then, verse 7, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat. So that was a marker. It goes on the doorpost of the house. And the idea is then, when the, the, when the Lord comes through Egypt, he will pass over every house that has the blood on the doorposts. So the lamb is sacrificed in place of the firstborn. The judgment was that the firstborn in each family would die in all the land of Egypt. And the lamb dies in place of the firstborn. The firstborn is representative of the rest of the family. God's judgment rightly would fall on everyone. But he says that judgment is specifically going to fall on the firstborn because the firstborn is the representative of the family. And the lamb is dying in place of the firstborn. As you skip on down through, you see that Jesus, excuse me, that God says exactly that, verses 12 and 13, I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. That's where our word Passover comes from. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And then he says, verse 14, This day shall be for you a memorial day. You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. So we're going to remember this day, he says. And so he gives the instructions. You follow down verse 21. You get the specific instructions of how they're supposed to go about this. And then verse 28, we are told, Then the people of Israel went and did so. As the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. And then we have the actual occurrence of the judgment of the firstborn. The tenth plague happens at midnight, verse 29. The Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. All through the land of Egypt, that's what happens. And then Israel is finally able to journey out, and we read, verse 43, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is bought for money may eat of it. And he gives all the instructions about how they're supposed to celebrate this. 
And finally, verse 50, all the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people out of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. Then after that whole event, verse one of chapter 13 says, the Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. So this idea of dedicating the firstborn comes right on the heels of the Passover event because it's designed to remind them of this event that God's judgment rightly falls on all of them. The firstborn, as representative of the family, is dedicated to the Lord. That's symbolic of dedicating the whole family to the Lord. God says they belong to me. So, dedication at the temple, what happens to Jesus, is pointing back to this event. As the story of Exodus goes on, we read in Exodus 22, the firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. You shall do the same with your oxen and with your sheep. Seven days it shall be with its mother. On the eighth day you shall give it to me. So specifically the eighth day is identified. Now, what does all of that tell you? Well, it tells you that when we read what happens here in Luke chapter 2, and you can, you can go back to Luke 2 now, we are reading that Jesus was brought up in accordance with the law, in fulfillment of the law, exactly as the law said, that's how Jesus was brought up. He was dedicated on the eighth day, and it signifies all of these important things. But did you notice how clear Luke is about that idea? Verse 21, at the end of eight days. Verse 22, according to the law of Moses. Verse 23, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Verse 24, according to what is said in the law of the Lord. Over and over, we're told that this is happening in accordance with the law. So Jesus, the spotless lamb, fulfills the law. He even goes on to say during his ministry, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. John the Baptist, when he comes on the scene, says, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the spotless lamb, and the outward sign of that is that he perfectly keeps the law even in the way that his parents dedicated him on the eighth day. Paul specifically identifies Jesus with that Passover event as he writes to the Corinthians, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Peter says, you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Jesus is without blemish or spot. He's perfect. There's nothing that you could look at and find fault in him, all the way back to being dedicated on the eighth day. And so the end result of all of that is that when he stands in our place, when he goes to the cross as our Passover lamb, when he, as the firstborn among many brethren, represents us before God, it fulfills the law for us. That's why Paul, 
when he writes to the Romans, says that Christ is the end of the law. That word end, it's telos, it's goal. Christ is the goal of the law for, for righteousness to everyone who believes. He is what the law was always pointing for. He is righteousness on behalf of everyone who believes in him. And the fact that he's dedicated on the eighth day is just telling you to the very last detail Our spotless lamb fulfills the law. Jesus is a king like no other. He's not only able to represent his people in battle, which he does. We've already talked about that this morning. The battle that he fights on the cross against sin and Satan and death. But also in the sacrifice of himself on their behalf. One of the fundamental roles of a king is that he's the representative of his people. But this king represents his people by winning the victory for them in battle, but also by sacrificing himself in their place as the firstborn. So from his very arrival, God arranged Jesus' life to be in accordance with the law. Think about it. Jesus as an eight-day-old human baby could not arrange to be dedicated He didn't speak up at eight days old and tell Joseph and Mary, uh, you guys need to make sure that you get me dedicated today, right? He doesn't say anything. This is the sovereignty of God at work over human hearts, arranging things so that Joseph and Mary would be near to Jerusalem in Bethlehem, a few miles down the road, able to go and take him and be dedicated. Jesus, the spotless lamb, fulfills the law. And so we sing, shepherds bow before the lamb, gazing at the glory. Or in the song that we just sang before the message, see amid the winter's snow, born for us on earth below, see the tender lamb appears, promised from eternal years. Jesus, the spotless lamb, fulfills the law. All right, the second thing is that Jesus is a light to the Gentiles. Let's pick it up in Luke chapter 2 and verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ or the Messiah. And he came in the spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Simeon has been waiting for the consolation of Israel, the redemption of Israel. The Old Testament prophets were looking forward to a day when Israel's troubles would be ended. Israel, throughout her history, was a a people under siege, so to speak. And the prophets looked forward to a day when there would be peace and security Amos 9, verses 11 to 15 talks about it. Isaiah 40, these are familiar verses. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem 
and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And Simeon sees this fulfilled in the arrival of Jesus, that the the consolation, the comfort of Israel has arrived. Jesus is a light, he says, for the gent- for revelation to the Gentiles. We've previously, in the past few weeks, talked about how Jesus is the light. But note here that he's not just a light for the Jewish people. He's a light for the Gentiles. Isaiah 49 and verse 6, he says... It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And the idea there is that that as we're looking forward to the Messiah in this prophecy in Isaiah, it's not a big enough, glorious enough, grand enough thing that the Messiah would come and simply redeem Israel. But when the Messiah comes, he will be a light for the nations. Through the Messiah, God's salvation will go to the ends of the earth. And so Simeon sees that Jesus is a light for revelation to the Gentiles. And this is why when Paul, for instance, writes to the Ephesians, we read something like this in Ephesians 2, 11 to 14. Therefore, remember... That at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So there's no more Jew and Gentile, because Jesus was a light for revelation to the Gentiles, bringing them into the people of God. Jesus is... The one king for the one kingdom. There are not two separate divided peoples of God. There's not two kingdoms. There's one kingdom with one king. The entire sweep of the New Testament emphasizes the unity of God's people. One kingdom with one king. So for instance, when we sing the song, Joy to the World, note the universal language that's there. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king, not just the Jews. Joy to the world, the Savior reigns. He comes to make his blessings flow throughout the land of Israel. No, far as the curse is found, the whole world. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. Jesus is a light to the Gentiles. The third thing, then, that we see about Jesus in Luke chapter 2 is that Jesus brings peace and reconciliation. I'm going to step back to the beginning of what Simeon said in verse 29 and continue on a little farther now. So verse 29 of Luke 2. 
Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Those are kind of ominous words there that Simeon gives. This child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel. The fall of those who reject the light. The fall and rising of many in Israel is really referring specifically to the religious leaders and the rulers in Jesus' day. The light comes and the light reveals the truth. Jesus reveals the evil hearts of these leaders. As you read the Gospels, most of the, for, for the most part, as you read them, there's this kind of rising tension throughout the gospel. And by the end of it, you really see a dividing line and people are on one side or the other. And the religious rulers and leaders, by and large, are on the opposite side of the line from Jesus. And a choice must be made. What will you do with Jesus? And the point that we're saying here is that Jesus brings peace and reconciliation, but that peace and reconciliation also has, on the flip side, a sword. Jesus brings peace between men and men, and between men and God, but that only applies to those who side with him. See, ultimately, the downfall of evil rulers will lead to peace on earth. In our family worship time the other night, we were talking about the Christmas story and we were talking about Simeon's words and um, we kind of looked at this idea of evil rulers and I said, how many of you, if you could have, because we were reading about how the, the reign of this Messiah would be eternal. I said, how many of you, if you could take our current leadership in our nation and our current president, you would like to make his reign eternal? Would you want that? Of course not, right? We want evil rulers gone. The only ruler that we want to be an eternal ruler is a ruler who is a good ruler, a righteous ruler. And that's what Jesus will be. But on the way to that, he's putting all of his enemies under his feet. And so all of those evil rulers have to be done away with. So he does bring peace and reconciliation but along the way, that means the fall of many over time as that peace is accomplished. So we're on the way towards that now. Jesus is now building his kingdom through the preaching of the gospel. So, for example, when Paul writes to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5, he says this, We are ambassadors for Christ. Now, what's an ambassador? An ambassador is someone who represents a nation or a kingdom. So we are representatives of King Jesus. God making his appeal through us. So God has a message for everyone. What will you do with Jesus? Which side of the line? Will you have faith in Jesus? Will you reject the light? 
Which side of the line will you be on? So God's making his appeal through us. That good news of the gospel comes now through us. That good news that was announced by the angels. And so Paul says, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Jesus brings peace and reconciliation. When you side with Jesus, you are reconciled to God. You have peace with God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is what's called the great exchange. Jesus takes my sin on the cross. As God looks at him, it's as if he's dealing with my sin when he deals with Jesus. And I receive the righteousness of Christ. And all of God's people throughout time together are evidence of the righteousness or faithfulness of Christ. This is the message, the message of peace. I think maybe a helpful way to kind of understand this, how we are saying that that Jesus brings peace and reconciliation, and yet we're living in a world that doesn't have peace, and people aren't reconciled to each other. There's a Christmas carol that was written in our nation's history during a time of great conflict. I heard the bells on Christmas Day. Let me just walk you through this song. It was written during the Civil War. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play. And mild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. That expresses that kind of Christmas sentiment that we have. This message of peace on earth that that Christmas embodies in many ways. I thought how as the day had come, the belfries of all Christendom had rolled along the unbroken song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. So the bell towers of the churches throughout the land as Christmas Day arrives are announcing the Christmas song, peace on earth, goodwill to men. Till ringing, singing on its way, the world revolved from night to day, a voice, a chime, a chant sublime of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then from each black accursed mouth, the cannon thundered in the south. And with the sound, the carols drowned of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And so you see the tension that is there as the day opens and the cannons begin and the sounds of the Christmas carols, peace on earth, are drowned out by the sounds of war and conflict between men. It was as if an earthquake rent the hearthstones of a continent and made forlorn the households born of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Note the language there, as if an earthquake rent the hearthstones. It's division. Even amongst families, there's division in this war. When Jesus brings peace and reconciliation, it's it's reconciling those who had been divided back together. And in despair, I bowed my head, There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. I'm guessing 
there's many times that you can relate to that verse as you look at our world today. There is no peace on earth. Hate is strong. It mocks this idea of peace on earth. Really? Jesus accomplished peace? Are we really seeing that? Is that really ever going to to come to fulfillment? Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail. The right prevail with peace on earth, goodwill to men. The confidence expressed in that last verse comes from the advent of Jesus. It's the arrival of the fulfillment of all that God had promised. God had promised peace. The answer to those promises is Jesus. Now Jesus is ruling and reigning and he's putting all of his enemies under his feet until the day when that final enemy, death, is defeated. That day is coming. It's already been accomplished at the cross. It will come in its fulfillment. And the confidence that's expressed in a verse like this is born out of the fact that the promises of God are seen to be kept. They're seen to be true in the arrival, the advent of Jesus. And Jesus will bring reconciliation between God and men. The final thing this morning is that Jesus turns mourning to rejoicing. Jesus turns mourning to rejoicing. Picking it up in Luke chapter 2 and verse 36 now. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Anna here, who has been waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem, moves, did you notice? She moves from fasting and prayer to giving thanks. That transformation in Anna is what happens with the accomplishment of Jesus. He turns mourning to rejoicing. She's seeing the fulfillment of God's promises. Here's the one other place I'm going to have you turn this morning. Turn to Isaiah 61 with me. Isaiah chapter 61. Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61, we're just going to look at the first three verses. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, 
to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Good news, bind up, liberty, the year of the Lord's favor. The year of the Lord's favor is the year of jubilee. It's when all the debts are released. But also note what we read in Luke chapter 2 verse 40 was that as Jesus grew, the favor of God was upon him. He's the fulfillment of this. As you look at Isaiah 61, it's very interesting, especially verse 2. The year of the Lord's favor, the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. It's comfort for God's people. But comfort for God's people also means vengeance for God's enemies. All of the things that oppose God's people, all of the enemies of God's people are put to death and judged. And that's comfort for God's people. Instead of suffering under those things and having to deal with those things, mourning is turned to rejoicing. It's a day of comfort that comes through God executing vengeance. Gladness instead of mourning. Our mourning is turned to rejoicing. That flows from Jesus' actions as king. He gains the victory over his and our enemies, Satan and sin and death. And in gaining that victory as king, he turns our mourning into rejoicing. And that's clear in what we sing. Joy has dawned upon the world, promised from creation. God's salvation now unfurled. Hope for every nation. And I already read part of this once, but I I need to go through it again. Because this song by Isaac Watts, Joy to the World, just absolutely perfectly embodies this idea. Joy to the world. Joy to the world. The Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. Joy to the world, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ, giving thanks, praise. While fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. No more let sins and sorrows grow nor thorns infest the ground. The enemies have been defeated. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. Would you pray with me? Lord, as we Consider this morning this Christmas story from the book of Luke and as we see what it tells us about Jesus, our King, I pray that our response would be like Anna, like Simeon, to give thanks, to rejoice. I pray that even now as we spend the next couple of minutes singing songs, they would be heartfelt and sincere, that we would sing in spirit and in truth, rejoicing at what you have done. But not just while we're together and singing songs, that as we go about our life together as a church and as we walk out and live Monday through Friday in work, at home, with neighbors, with friends, 
in every aspect of our life, that we would live in a way that is a response to what you have accomplished as our king. We are your people. You have purchased us. You have died for us. You live again for us. You've defeated our enemies and you've turned our mourning into rejoicing. May we live our lives in light of that fact. And we pray this in Jesus' name.